Good morning. It is a blessing to be here uh, this morning, to be able to worship our God, to look, uh, to look at His Word and, and grow by it. Uh, we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be finishing up this section. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Before we begin, I've asked Brother Ryan to lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dearest Lord, our Father and our God, Yahweh Most High, we thank you so much for the ways that you have blessed us, for bringing us together, uh, for giving us a time to think about you and to be in your spirit together. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we are face to face, help us to honor each other with our words and our intentions and our attention. Uh, bless us to become more like Christ, and that if any way possible, Lord, may we be made like him in his resurrection. For it's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 2 Corinthians, uh, we've been seeing... What Paul has to say to these Christians about what it looks like to be all in with Jesus, being yoked together with Jesus and God in the ministry of the kingdom. And we saw a lot of that in his motivation in chapters 1 through 7. Um, there's an issue, though, that Paul is concerned about, and that is they had once committed to help, helping relieve some Christians who were, who were impoverished in Jerusalem, in the Judean area. And, they, and uh, though they had made this commitment and they desired to do it a, a, a year ago, they hadn't brought it to completion. They, they had some questions or concerns. Some people perhaps with some negative influence regarding Paul um, trying to tarnish his name there among the Corinthians. And so they, they aren't participating in this. And Paul is is begging them to, to renew and rekindle this demonstration of, of their devotion to God. And so uh, we saw in, in chapter 8, um, Paul talk about how grace is, is growing because of the report that he gave the Macedonian churches, places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, and, their and how the report of them planning to do this stirred the Macedonian churches to participate. And, they, and even though they were going through great affliction and they were extremely poor off, it wasn't about the money. It's about the desire to, to be givers just as God is, is a giver. And... And so he encourages them. He tells them that he's sending Titus along with some other brethren to make sure that this is brought to completion. And he has this great confidence and shares that great confidence with not only Titus and the other brethren, but also with the Macedonians and, and the report going out throughout all the world of the, of the work that God is doing. And we emphasized that in our last class, that really it's God who is the provider. God is uh, the one who, 
makes all of this possible. God is able to work through his people. He's able to work through, uh, through them in this effort. And so we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 9 here. If I could have somebody read for us. We'll go ahead and just read uh, all of chapter 9. Anybody like to read for us? Thank you. Now concerning the ministry to the saints... It is superfluous for us to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians. The Decaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare you about the gift before him, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a quaking obligation. But as this I say, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of you give as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, He is dispersed abroad, He is given to the poor, His righteousness remains forever. Now may He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food supply, and multiply the seed you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all the word which causes thanksgiving <coughs> us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Well, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal sharing with them and all. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the Exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his incredible gift. Thank you. And so in the beginning of chapter 9, we already touched on this, that um, they, they were uh, ready a year ago and their zeal had, had stirred up. And we talked about how, like in Hebrews chapter 10, how uh, they, whenever we share the good work that we, are, that we do, we stir one another up. We, we encourage one another to be living for God, to be all in in, in our ministry. And so... Um, he doesn't want them to, to let, uh, let him down um, uh, or let... Uh, we, we had mentioned that there were several things at stake with this. That not only their faith was at stake in this, but um, the encouragement of the Macedonians as well as the Jerusalem brethren actually receiving the gift. Um, that, that if they did not bring it to completion... 
uh, what would be the consequence of that. And so uh, let's, let's jump in with verses 6 and following. We talked a little bit about what the heart of of a giver is he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly he who sows bountifully it will also reap bountifully uh, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity god loves a cheerful giver we've we've heard the, these uh, verses myriads of times but looking at the context uh, in which paul is writing this what stands out to you what, in what Paul's trying to convey? Um, yes. His purpose in his heart. His purpose in his heart. Purposing in his heart. Yes, um, he, he says that in that verse here. I think that that's, that's um, applicable to, to this. It, that it's not just, that's not um, just done willy-nilly. That it's not, oh, what, um, let, me, let me see what I have on hand. Um, and it's not even just necessarily a fixed amount of money, um, because that. Uh, but it's really the heart that is that is the important thing. This just feels like a letter of reminder to me, it, because a year before this, Paul was actually physically there, and they had already collected the money for him to take to, to Jerusalem. And they gave it to him, and he just saw all of the abounding giving and the love and the care. So he said, I've been away from you for over a year now, and I'm hoping that everything is still in place because for a year I have told everybody in Macedonia what a wonderful assembly you guys were and that you you gave with your hearts and with love and that and so I'm sending people back and make, to refresh. I'm just, this is like a refresher. I'm just checking to see if you still have that zeal for God. If you still, like, if you're still doing it from the heart. If it's still with purpose. And, and so I don't think, he, I don't feel like he's chiding them. I feel like he's refreshing them to say, I'm coming. I'm hoping I'll see the same thing I did last year. Very good. That that idea of reminder. <coughs> yes, Roy. This isn't them working. It's God working through them. It's to God's glory, not theirs. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, that the idea of of what God is is able to do with that, and I think you, you can see that in particular in in verse eight that we'll that we'll see in just a little bit. Um, yeah, in verse, in verse 6, the idea of um, the heart that, that we have is demonstrated by our actions. Okay? Why would someone 
so sparingly. It's not based on the amount that they have. I don't have much to sow, so I'm not going to sow a lot. It's, it's the heart in which it's done. With. Um, it's, it's, not a, um, it's not an economic situation of poverty versus richness. It's about the attitude of what am I doing? Am I, am I spreading abroad? Am I uh, sowing bountifully? Yes, brother. It seems to me that the, it's the practical side of hope that he's talking to them about. Nobody failed, uh, nobody plans to fail, but sometimes we fail to plan. And he's trying to get them to see there's a practical thing you need to do because of what you have purposed, you've already purposed to give. Now let's not make me show up and you've not done anything about that. That's a really good idea. That I, uh, the notion that uh, having a a cheerful, a gen, a true generous heart plans and, and, and doesn't say, "Oh, look, I have something left over. Let me let me let me be generous with that." But actually, but. Um, being intentional, thinking of others first, thinking of Christ first, and and what and what He has done, and how He was a giver, and, and things of that nature. Very good. Other thoughts. One of the things that um, we see in verse seven, uh, each one as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Couple of things as we sort of like unpack that. I've always just I've, we've heard that verse a lot of times in the past. But thinking, why does God love a cheerful giver? It would be because He Himself is a cheerful giver. Um, he, is, he is the epitome of that. He's the one who actually measures the cheerfulness of our hearts. Um, God, um, does God give grudgingly or of necessity? I imagine, imagine if that was how God was, if he was reluctant to bless us. But we see in his character... How, how much he wants to lavish upon us and, and, and bless. And so, so he loves those who are like him, who are being transformed into, uh, into him and his likeness. This is a manifestation of that. And again, it brings all the attention, as the comments have already been made, all the attention on God. Just think of... Just read verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. It's not me trying to take it upon myself to do, to do things. God is doing everything to take care of us and utilize us. Uh, and, and 
And that takes a lot of the fear and insecurity out of the equation. And, and, and really, we have no room to take any credit for, the, for, for good works. It is God who is working in us. Uh, it's not, oh, look what I was able to accomplish with, with my deeds or with my money or with my time. No, it is the transformation that comes through Christ uh, in all of this. Um, his grace is, the one, is what is abounding in us. It's, it's equipping us to do his ministry. Uh, other thoughts on that? I appreciate how he, in verse 9, brings in, once again, another Old Testament reference. Uh, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Your, your Bible may have a, a note. Where does that come from? Okay, Psalm 112. Let's actually look there for a second. It's a, it's a brief psalm, but a, a powerful psalm. Um, psalm 112. I want you to think, as, you, as we're reading through this, who... Is being, is being spoken of in this section. Who is the psalmist writing about? Um, Joshua, are you able to read that for us? Psalm 112. Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are his house. His righteousness endures forever. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. He will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured. He will not fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked one will see it and be angry. He will gnash his teeth in despair. The desire of the wicked leads to ruin. Thank you. Who's being talked about in this? Almost a trick question here, but we didn't. The man who fears the Lord. The man who fears the, the man who fears the Lord. The man who fears the Lord in verse 1. Happy or blessed is he. Um, it had it not been for a few little phrases in there, you would, you would think that this is talking specifically and directly only about God, but um, this is about the character of one who, who ought to, how one ought to live before God, um, what that looks like. And, and what we see is that the character of one who fears the Lord is shaped and fashioned and molded 
into his likeness. We look like God. And we see that in Christ, how Christ shows us who God is in in righteousness, in being a light, being gracious, being full of grace um, and compassion, and, um, and saying that it didn't just dawn, it didn't dawn me until just now in verse 9. He's dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. And it doesn't say his good deed helps somebody for that day. It says his righteousness endures forever. And that's just, that's very, very powerful uh, in this. Having this kind of of mindset. If I want to be a righteous person, trying to follow the righteousness of God, um, then I will be characterized as being a cheerful giver. Not just not just a giver, but a cheerful um, giver. Going back to that idea in verse seven, uh, Jesus is the epitome of. Not just being a giver, but one of cheerfulness, of generosity, of willingness, and not reluctance or of necessity or of uh, or with a grudging attitude. <clears throat> what are we called to do with a grudging spirit? Where in Scripture do we, do we see it really like Christ saying, you know, it's okay if you're doing this reluctantly. We are called to be a cheerful giver, a cheerful worshiper, a cheerful repenter. If we, you know what? I'm going to kick and scream, but I'm just going to, I'll go ahead and confess I did wrong. I'll change my No. We, we do things with a cheer, do all things. We are servants. We are, we are a cheerful member of the body. We are a cheerful, we are a cheerful brother. We are uh, cheerful sheep. We are cheerful in everything. And we see that manifested in, in the Macedonians, um, in, in what Paul's calling for the Corinthians to do with enthusiasm, with eagerness, with generosity, with sacrifice. Just, just being all in. Not just, not just in word, but in, in heart. In heart. What, what else stands out to you? I, I, I didn't really allow for much comment in Psalm 112, but what, what else stands out to you in all of this? To me, the first verse, praise y'all, happy as it is the man who fears y'all, who greatly delights in his commandments. So he set right there into motion what being righteous was. It's the one who fears and keeps the commands of Yahweh. Then he goes on to say, and this is what it will look like in your life. You will be, your, 
Um, your seed will be mighty, the generation upright, wealth and riches in your house, righteousness stands forever, light arises, darkness with upright, is gracious, compassionate, righteous, it's well with the man who's gracious and lends, who sustains his work of justice, he will never be shaken, his righteousness will be remembered forever, for he will, never, uh, he will not fear evil. Evil reports, his heart set, trusting in Yahweh. His heart is upheld, he will not fear, until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. You will triumph over your adversaries. And then he says, he will give freely to the needy. His righteousness will stand forever. His horn will be raised in glory. The, the man who fears and keeps the commandments of Yahweh will look right, just like that. And that's what's going to happen in the end. Because it goes on to say, the wicked will not. And, and that contrasts the, the one who delights in the Lord yeah, as opposed to the wicked. Um, and uh, the wicked will, will despair. They will perish. They will melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. What is... What is our desire? What is our delight? Something like a lip, like the whole from six, maybe even further up, I don't know, but it's, it's an agricultural uh, metaphor that he's given us. It's an annual accounting, um, which you only get. So the, the difference between grain and seed is just the intent. Right. So you got a you got a person that is that is looking at a grain bin, and they got to separate what they're going to eat from what they're going to sow. And so the the literal translation, not cheerful, it's without regret. So one needs to sow in hope that some, taking some portion of that grain bin and not eating it, not turning it into bread, but instead turning it into future. Does that make sense? Like, you, you're planting it. You don't get to eat it. But the hope is that you'll get to eat next year, which gives you, get, gives the farm a past and a present and a future. Um, it, it's not a small thing to set aside seed. Like that, that's a huge deal. Like that, that's taking food off of your family's plate, um, your plate, um, you know, and, and the, the, you know, human history is full of these stories of people struggling with how much do I need to hold back from my plate so that I can plant this fall. That's, that's a very good point. Just, uh, yeah, l uh, looking at this, this concept of, of the one... Uh, of seeds and sowing. Um, we'll see it more in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. That idea, and I appreciate you bringing that up, that doing it without regret and, and be, being intentional. And there are some with the mindset of, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to wait 
until I have make, made sure that I take care of myself until I die and I make sure that I take care of my own and my family and I have something for, for them and then if there's anything left then, then I will be generous. We can't wait till we reach stability. And so having that idea of reliance on God, that idea of hope, of trust, and, and uh, trust is not done with regret. That's um, like it's a bushel of wheat per acre. Yeah. That you have to plant in order to hopefully get back ten or twenty bushels, maybe in that day. So, I, I, like that, I think that is what Isaiah was keying in on. Isaiah fifty-five is where yeah. Paul grabs this, and this is what Paul's keying in on. You don't—it's not an unlimited amount. You, you're not being stingy by putting food on your family's plate. You're sowing hope. In a bushel per acre. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it in that way. Yeah, Isaiah 55 in verse 10 is one of the uh, passages. Um, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud that may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, and bread to the eater as well. Uh, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Uh, for you shall go out with joy and be led with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Um, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, and an everlasting sign shall not be uh, cut off. That That God is... God is the one who is supplying for, for us, that we may take care of ourselves, but that we ought not live for ourselves, but living for other people. Yes, Bob. It is so easy to see how uh, Paul, or any inspired writer for that matter, can talk about two things at once. Uh, and we are, as, as Ryan has so uh, ably uh, explained to us, the idea of the seed and the sacrifice of that seed uh, to sow, uh, that you don't get to consume for your good, but you, you sacrifice it uh, and, and offer it to the earth, and then it yields back uh, manyfold, uh, like verse 10. Uh, the spiritual application runs right alongside of it, that we see in that verse that we just mentioned. Now he who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You know, makes makes that connection that everything in our lives is just like that. You know, what we, uh, and and, in the next verse, that results in our thanksgiving to God who gave us the bushel to sacrifice. 
So actually we have nothing. So it's just, uh, those things always run in tandem, it seems like, when we when we read the scriptures almost always. And I think uh, both are important. Of course, the eternal one more so. But uh, we certainly understand that these people were agricultural people. It was crystal clear to them. So let me drive it in just a little further so we're sure of it. So the other type of agriculture is perennial. You plant, you, you have a, you have an olive tree. The olive tree bears. You don't have to plant that every year. God takes care of that. That's a perennial type of agriculture, and and the the Israelites inherited that when they came into the land. That was a huge deal, folks. And so God takes care of it. He doesn't. You don't have to plant it. God puts fruit on it. And you get some of it back. Now all of a sudden He's giving you grain. Now. Now you have to act like God. How much can you eat? How much do I have to replant? How much do I have to prepare for the birds to eat? Because the birds are going to eat something. So, like, when, when, he, when Paul digs this up, he's saying behave like God. And, and this, is a, this is an observational thing that you only get if you spend some time in nature and, and have to eat from hand to mouth. Good. I appreciate um, as we see in the last few verses all that all that God is able to do and what he is calling us to do in, in, in being sowers in the kingdom. In being workers in the kingdom. Yes, Tim. So, verse 7 includes something that uh, feels, it could feel like a contradiction, uh, but I think what the discussion right now helps with that, and that is uh, that, hey, we need to give, it is our responsibility, (laughs) but. Don't do it under compulsion. It really kind of feels like a contradiction uh, when you just read it from that just bare bones uh, looking at the words. <laughs> but I think the discussion of, hey, you need to do this because it's good for you and it, it will produce more for the future. That under, it's not under compulsion. In other words, this is something that is not only uh, a command, but it is also something that is going to be good for you. Does that make sense or not? Or do we need to discuss that? Yeah. Um, Paul could have said, he could have condensed two chapters into a sentence. He could, he, he could have said, you know what? You desired to do this a year ago. Give. F- finish, finish this work that you that you've said that you will do. Um, but he doesn't. Um, I, I appreciate uh, so much how he, how he, um, he doesn't use, 
his apostolic authority as like a trump card and say, you know what, I'm going to finish the conversation right here. You need to be a giver and let's move on. But he, he speaks to what the heart ought to look like. Um, and whenever uh, we, as you said, we should do all things with the right heart. And it, if, we are, if we are seeking righteousness without the heart of God, it's not going to accomplish anything. I mean, we see that even in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, that, that whatever we do without love uh, is nothing. And so, um, so uh, yeah, the idea there that we, that we see um, it, Paul bringing it up almost feels, you know what, this, this is a command, you, have, you must do this or else. Um, but, but really looking at, um, looking at Christ and what he has been able to do. Yes, Luke? Yeah, I 100% agree. It does look like this comes up to a different intention. And sometimes I think people in the church have used this chapter to put pressure on someone to give. Which is kind of funny because the whole point of it is that you shouldn't have to do it under pressure, right? And I think we take a shortcut to say we want the giver part. But it says cheerful giver. So how do you get the cheerful part? And it's one of those things where Paul, seems, Paul wants them to give, but he doesn't want to have to tell you that you have to give. And I guess it's kind of similar to you really can't you can't really command somebody to love you either. You know, that's something they have to be inspired to do, and it has to be something of their own volition. And I think it's what Paul wants here. It's ultimately he wants us to be an outgrowth of the fact that we love each other because we love God, because we know God loves us. Very good. Yeah. Um... Just looking at God as the center of that verse. And God loves. What does that look like is, is transforming us as well in that. Yeah, Josh. And also thinking about the verse 7 from the perspective of the person receiving the gift. The gift has built into it the desire of the person to give it. Otherwise, it's, it's not a gift. It's a tax or, you know, something else like that. Um, I, can, I can understand the feeling of the contradiction that, Tom, that, that Tim mentioned um, because I, I can see some people taking this and saying, well, I don't want to give anything, so this is my get-out-of-jail-free card. But that's to ignore the whole rest of the chapter. That's admonishing people to be givers and to be cheerful. So it's, the challenge remains. <coughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> the challenge remains. The challenge remains. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we can see we can see God in action. Um, and I, I appreciate the, the thought of um, our generosity um, flows out of our hearts and not necessarily as a tax, as it were. Um, and we see in verse 11, while enriched in everything 
for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. And continuing on, for the administration of this service, we really see what how Paul views this collection in these chapters. The administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for liberal sharing with them and all and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace, not just grace, exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God or grace be to God for this, uh, his indescribable gift. Paul sees at the heart of this, as we've mentioned before, not about dollars and cents, but it's about changing people's hearts. Um, changing hearts to give and seeing the giving of others changing hearts as well. And we can go back and forth on the, the physical gift and the spiritual, but bottom line to me is Paul is trying to mold us into Christ-likeness. If, if we become, I mean, Christ had not even a place to lay his head, yet he was the most generous, giving flesh that ever walked on this earth, both spiritually and physical. And that's what the, the apostles are trying to mold us into that image of Christ's likeness. And I think verse 15, when he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, is Christ. I think that indescribable gift there is that he sent his son. And if we don't find the value in what his son gave to us, we will never, ever look like him. And that's a good point, that idea of, of being... Um, being a giver and thinking of that, of thinking of Jesus as that gift. Well, I thought about this talking. Uh, you know, when you talk to people about being baptized, a lot of them come with, "Well, do I have to be baptized?" That's not. That's not the faith. Faith is here's water on him, and you can be baptized. It's totally the heart. Okay. Other thoughts or comments? Yes, sir. One of the things I came off of when I was looking at Psalms 112 is verse 7. He's not afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. We were talking about the willingness and the, and the, the having to give, which I'm looking for. There's two things, you're trying, two fears you're trying to avoid. One is God can do me if I don't, I must. The harshness of God, which is not the point. But there's also what do I need tomorrow? If to the agricultural analogy, grain is grain and apples drought, that grain's gone. You have to be that part of the act of faith is being 
can say, God, take care of me. Uh, I, I, I can do this out of the heart because God provides for my needs. And things, things will go well when it's Right, very good, yeah. Uh, we see the, um, how Paul views this um, as an opportunity to prove uh, their genuine love. We saw even back in, um, in chapter 8 and verse 8, um, I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love. This is an opportunity for them to prove their love. Uh, and in verse uh, 12 here, also abounding through many thanksgivings to God, people are praising God for, the, for how he is working in these saints' lives. Uh, it uh, reminds me of Matthew chapter 5. In verse 16, where we're called to be lights in, unto the world so that the world can see us and not say, hey, that's a good guy. Look at how awesome he is. No, but giving the praise where it belongs to, to the light giver, to God. Um, and, and they, they, in verse 13, they glorify God. For the obedience of your confession to the gospel. This isn't just some side project. This is, a, this is truly a manifestation of the gospel of Christ. And so you can, um, this, the word here, your translation may render it um, sharing or contribution. It's also the idea of the, the Greek word of koinonia of fellowship and communion. We have communion with God and we have communion with one another when we give. Uh, we, when, we, when we work together. Um, other thoughts in this section? I was a tad bit fascinated by the conversation about the, the seeming uh, uh, contradiction of the two things that Paul is saying. I want you to want to, but you need to. Nobody gets upset with their kid, the five-year-old son or daughter, that the only reason they're here on Sunday morning is because mom and dad are coming and you're coming with us. We don't get upset with our five-year-old kids by having to tell them, you need to brush your teeth. But if my kids are 25 and that's still going on, there's a problem. And, and, and if you look at the greater context of first and second Corinthians, is Paul dealing with mature children of God here Children that children have some immaturity that they're still dealing with, and it's the same thing with a teenager. Some days, some days they're adults, and some days they're five again, right? And I think that's why maybe we see both ends of that spectrum back and forth with Paul. He is trying to draw them into maturity as children of God and, and want to do the right thing. But sometimes he says, "You know what?" 
I'm coming. <laughs> and you don't want to be on the wrong side of me when I get there. It'd be like the end of this letter. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, saying, do the right thing. End of, end of discussion. I'm, I'm the parent. You need to do this. Um, that doesn't allow for the growth of heart. And, but, but telling them of Jesus, looking at the character, and, and, and cheering the child on, saying, I know you can do this. I, I have every confidence uh, that you can do that. But you, you agree that sometimes it's appropriate. At 925, it, yeah. it, the, the, the discussion may be getting the car. Yes. <laughs> but that's a five-year-old. Yes. Um, what else stands out to you in here? The idea of uh, of this sharing, this communion, um, that he's speaking to primarily a Gentile audience with a with a Jewish recipient of this benefit, and you see the unity that that is coming through Christ uh, that. And that's made possible for, for these people. And if these Gentile Christians uh, show this brotherly kindness toward these Jews who they previously despised, who would they refuse fellowship with? Who would they, who would they not be generous toward? It's, um, they, they are generous toward all people. Josh. That's a very good point. I have a note here. If we think that God is stingy, then we will be stingy. And if we think that God is generous, then we will be generous. And if we are not generous, <coughs> we miss the point of the gospel. We miss it. And so um, I, I'm so thankful for our opportunity to, to talk through uh, some of these things. Uh, hopefully this will spawn some more conversation. Um, Craig and I will be out of town, so we will have a guest teacher on Wednesday. Um, I believe we'll be sort of doing an overview of chapters 10 through 13. So thank you all for your uh, participation and your comments.